We're about, we're over midway, or we will be this morning, through our series on church offices. And remember why we're doing this, we're looking at church offices in such a way that uh, we want to, we want to respond and organize ourselves in the way that Christ indeed has organized the church. The church is an organism, but it is also an organization. God is a God of order, and Jesus has put his church into a particular order. Ultimately, why? For the spread of the gospel, for the Great Commission, for the purpose of making disciples. And so we've been walking through all these different offices. We started with the first two weeks looking at the fundamental office of members, fundamental office of members. Christ has given the keys of the kingdom to the local church, so not uh, that authority is held jointly among the members. And we talked about, well, what do the members do? And we looked at that, and then last week we said, all right, well, but if that's what the members do, if they're responsible to make disciples, they're responsible to uh, affirm people's discipleship through baptism and the Lord's Supper, they're responsible for guarding the flock as priests in in the sense of, uh, of, uh, of exercising a discipline over the flock, well, what do the elders do? What, what do the elders do? And we argued last week, well, elders are really shepherds. They have, if the members have authority of command, they have the ability to enforce uh, what is binding on a disciple's life. That's the, um, they're, they're able to enforce that through church discipline, through who partakes in the Lord's Supper, who doesn't. Then the elders, by contrast, have an authority of counsel, an authority of counsel. You can think about it this way. Uh, the elders are job trainers, Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, the elders, the pastors, the shepherds, the teachers, they are given to the church to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. So if you might think of a job and a job trainer, that's what the elders do. They shepherd. How do they do that? They know the flock. They feed the flock through the word. They lead the flock. They set a direction, say, here's where Christ, we believe, would take us. Come follow. And they guard the flock. So that's what we said last week the elders do. As they are job trainers for the members who have the authority of command, the elders have authority of counsel to train the members. Here's where you go. Here's what you do. Here's what it looks like to disciple. Here's what it looks like to guard and to discipline and all of these things. It's a high calling. It is directly responsible to Christ, just like the members jointly are held responsible to Christ for how they execute their office as priests, the elders, the shepherds, are held directly responsible to Christ for what they do. And with such a, such a high calling and what they are to do, what elders are to do, we need to next ask the question this week, if we talked about what the elders do last week, we need to ask the question, okay, if that's what they do, if that's their job, who should they be? Who should they be? What are the job qualifications? Yes, you know what the elders do. We talked about that last week, knowing and feeding and leading and guiding, but who are they to be? What are the qualifications necessary to fulfill that function? And so that's what we are going to look at this morning. What are the job qualifications for being an elder? Now, uh, as Steve alluded to in his prayer, you might be thinking this morning, it's like, well, wait, wait a minute, this is for the elders. I'm a member here, or maybe I'm not, uh, or I'm, I'm, I'm a, a member here, I'm, I'm maybe an attender, I'm not a, even a member yet, so maybe I can tune out. No, that is not the case. You can't tune out from this, because really, if, as we talked about, if the members have authority of command, and really the members have the responsibility to put over them, to affirm over them leaders who are themselves appointed by the Holy Spirit. That's how Acts 20, 28 talks about the Holy Spirit appoints elders for the flock. That's how Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. But what are the members to do? They're to affirm and say, okay, it looks like the Holy Spirit has appointed this person over us. Well, then you need to know as members, what are the qualifications? And this is mirrored every year in our annual meeting when we reaffirm or affirm new elders. Who does that? The members take a vote, rightfully so, to say, yeah, we affirm that these are the men that the Holy Spirit has put over us to shepherd us. 
But not only that, it's not only in terms of, okay, as members, you need to think about what are those qualifications? What are the job qualifications for elders? You need to hold us to that standard. But as Steve also alluded to in his prayer, when you look at the job qualifications, what you realize is that uh, the qualifications are ordinary Christianity. In other words, what Paul is going to do in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, and even what Peter is going to do in 1 Peter 5, what he lists in talking about those character qualifications, it's what every Christian should aspire towards. Now, not every Christian is going to be placed into that office, and only men can be put in the office of elder, but what you come to find out is all the character qualifications that are listed, this is every, these are things that every Christian should aspire to. Or as one author has put it, this is like exemplary, this is ordinary Christianity done in an exemplary way. Ordinary Christianity done in an exemplary way. So you can't tune out just saying, well, that's for elders, it's not for me. These are things that each one of us should aspire to. And so as we walk through these qualifications... You should be thinking about, how can I pursue that? How can I grow in that together? So here's the main idea for this morning as we talk about job qualifications. To sum it up, it's this. To shepherd God's flock, an elder must be above reproach. To shepherd God's flock, an elder must be above reproach. And we'll talk about that idea. What does it mean to be above reproach here in a minute? But that is, in, in essence, if you were to boil down all of the character qualifications, the job qualifications for being a shepherd of the flock, being an elder of the flock, it is being above reproach. But as we start this, and as we walk through these qualifications, let's first start with motivation. Let's first start with motivation. Elders must have the right motivation. Now, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm, pr I'm primarily looking at three texts kind of simultaneously. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, which we looked at last week. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, which Steve read. And Titus 1, 5 through 9. And so what's going to happen as I walk through this, I've kind of indicated in your notes, we're kind of bouncing between those three passages and wa walking through categories. And as we talk about this idea of motivation, let's first go to 1 Timothy 3. You should probably already be there from our scripture reading. And let's talk about this idea of having right motivation. 1 Timothy 3, 1. The saying is trustworthy. So what that indicates is uh, what Paul is about to say in regard to elder qualifications, this is, this is a trustworthy statement. It's like a tent peg that you, you hang things on. This is, you keep coming back to this. But what does he say? If anyone or if someone aspires to the office of overseer, and we argued last week office of overseer and elder, pastor, they're equivalent titles to equivalent offices. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble work, a noble task. And so you see there a couple ideas of a motivation. First, you've got just this kind of idea of, uh, of reaching out. That's the idea of aspiring. You're reaching out for something. You're and we get that from other contexts of life, the idea of aspiration. I'm reaching for someone. Now that, uh, reaching for someone or something, in this case, it's a something, it's an office. You could say it like this, it's ambition. It's a certain sort of ambition that is happening here. Now, that ambition may be right or wrong. Just because you desire something doesn't mean it's right or wrong. Could be good, could be bad. What Paul is saying here to Timothy, as he's an apostolic delegate in charge, at least in Ephesus, of kind of reorganizing the eldership there, if someone is reaching out for the office of overseer, so that should happen. Uh, and we'll find out as we look at 1 Peter 5 here in a second, the person who wants to, who becomes an overseer, becomes an elder, should want it, should desire it, should reach for it, strive for it. And then he uses another word, Paul does, he desires. This word is this Greek word epithumia, which is normally translated lust. It's a very strong desire. He lusts for a noble work. 
Now, Paul at this point is not saying the desire, the ambition, the aspiration that is right or wrong. He's just saying someone's going to have that. If they're going to want to do this job, they're going to have it. He assumes they're going to have it. That's not enough in and of itself, but it should be there. But what does he point it to? If that's what's going on, they desire a noble work. Now, don't miss the word work. It's not just the aspiration for an office or a title. It is an aspiration for a work, a job, the duties of the job that we looked at last week. We walked through all of those, knowing the flock, um, feeding the flock, leading the flock, guarding the flock. It's a job, and it's an important job, and it's one that will, has high accountability to the people of God, but ultimately also to Christ. So there should be this desire, and it should be a desire for the work that is taking place, the noble work, the good work. It's a good task. It's a noble work. It is a good work in God's eyes. God values it. Christ values this work. He's pleased with this work when elders and overseers do it well. So there should be a motivation, a desire for that noble work. Not the accolades, not the reward, not the title, none of that, the work itself under Christ. Now, Peter, if you flip over to 1 Peter 5, again, like I said, we're going to be bouncing kind of between those three. Actually, this first point is where we'll spend most of our time in 1 Peter, but in 1 Peter 5, and we read this last week, uh, Peter also reflects on motivation, on the proper motivation for being an elder or overseer of the flock. 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 1, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And really, that's where we pretty much focused last week. Elder is a shepherd exercising oversight. But then what Peter does is he says, all right, as the elder is doing that job, here's how they're supposed to do it. And really, a lot of what Peter says is motivational. Here's the proper motivation for doing this work. First, not under compulsion, but willingly. What does that mean? It means you don't do it because someone forced you into it. Uh, well, you're the last man standing. You're the only person we can ask to do this job. Uh, so you got to do it. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Goes back to that idea in 1 Timothy 3.1. The desire, the aspiration, the reaching for. It's a desire to do the work. It shouldn't be say, all right, I guess I'm the last person standing. I guess there's no one else to do it. I'll do it, I guess. That's not willingly, that's by compulsion. Should not be forced into it, but the person wants to do the work. Again, not the office per se, but the work that the office entails for the good of God's people. And then Peter keeps going on with the motivation. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Um not motivated by shameful gain is um, the idea that you're, you're, you're going into it looking for to get something out of it in terms of like, in, pretty much in this case is money. But you can think of other things that would be considered gain, prestige, power, control, um, but even money. Uh, no one should go into it for that reason at all. Uh, the contrasting term here is kind of eagerly. It's actually kind of, I think, uh, eagerly in the sense of, uh, it almost sounds like willingly, like he just said, but it's more of a different idea. It's, it's like committed. Uh, when you're eager for something, when you're eager for a work, it's like you're committed to it. You see the value of the work itself. Maybe, maybe you think about it like this in terms of a job situation. Uh, we all probably know what it's like to go to work for a paycheck, right? Uh, I'm going to work. I need the paycheck to pay my bills to support a family. That's not bad. That's not bad. Like you need to support your family, but maybe it's not work you necessarily enjoy or really committed to versus the idea of a vocation. I have this vocation. I love this kind of work. Maybe you're a teacher. Maybe you're an architect. Maybe you're an engineer, whatever that looks like. 
but then you're eager for it because you love the work itself. And that's the sort of idea that's happening here. It's not for shameful gain. It's not just for the paycheck or whatever else someone might think to gain out of it. That's the wrong motivation. It's committedly, it's eagerly for the work itself. Again, tying in with 1 Timothy 3.1. And then Peter adds on another, a third couplet here. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And really the idea of not domineering, it's just the idea of having mastery over. And what, what is Peter contrasting here? He's saying, you don't go into this thinking you're the master. You don't think, go into this thinking you're the owner. Now, we've seen this in Matthew 24 and 25, right? Jesus entrusts to slaves, to stewards, to steward his resources while he's gone, and then he's going to come back. But we saw in the parable of the talents, the one slave who thought he was the owner, or there's really a couple parables where the slave thinks he's the owner. And Peter's saying, no, 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 not like that. You're not the owner. You're a steward. And really, your stewardship consists of being an example. You're not the owner dictating down. You are a steward leading by example. That is proper motivation. There's actually one more motivation that uh, Peter tacks on. In, in, in light of even what we were just saying, when uh, Jesus entrusts stewardship to his leaders, his disciples, and then he's going to come back. Well, that's exactly what Peter's looking forward to, because look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd, which implies what? That every other elder is just an under-shepherd, like a sub-shepherd, a steward shepherd. But when the chief shepherd, the owner-shepherd, appears, you, the elders, will receive the unfading crown of glory. I don't know exactly what that means, but I'm looking forward to it. By God's grace, if I discharge the office of elder well. And we've talked about that in Matthew, that Jesus motivates with reward. Reward in the kingdom. I don't know all of what that's going to look like, and you don't get fixated on the reward. You do it because you love Jesus and you love his people, and yet there is this reality that you're, there's going to be a reward from the chief shepherd doing the, uh, if you do the job well. So even before we talk about the qualifications themselves, part of that is having the right motivation the right desire. It's really for the work itself. It's for, you see the the nobility of the work, the goodness of the work, that this is part and parcel of how Christ is building his church, helping his church, benefiting his people. And you have that desire and that motivation. And you even have an ambition for it, a longing for it. Not because you want to puff yourself up or have this great position, but because you see the benefit of it. You see the, the benefit of it for God's people. You see the the worth of shepherding for God's people. So that's the first thing. Elders must have the right motivation. But then if we were to talk in general, all right, uh, right motivation. What about other um, job qualifications? Well, we next look at this in both 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Elders must have unassailable character. Elders must have unassailable character. Now, let's go back to 1 Peter 3 for a minute. Right after Paul says, if you desire this, it's a noble task. It's a good work. Therefore, verse 2, if that's the case, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Must be above reproach. Um, if you flip over to Titus, just a few pages to your right, we haven't read this one yet, so I'm going to go ahead and read through first, uh, uh, Titus 1, 5 through 9. Let me go ahead and read through the whole text, but notice how the list of qualifications he gives starts similarly. Titus 1, 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, The husband of one wife and his children are believers, not open to the charge of a debauchery or insubordination. 
For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. But did you notice, like 1 Timothy 3, the heading on the list is this kind of umbrella character qualification of above reproach, same way it's translated, at least in ESV, in uh, Titus. In fact, he mentions it twice in Titus 1, 6 through 7. And actually, what's interesting is the word that's used in 1 Timothy 3 is different from the word that's used in Titus. It's translated the same way, but it's actually a little bit different. In 1 Timothy 3, 2, the word is kind of this idea of unattackable. Like, uh, unassailable would be a word that we would use to, to say this. Like, you can't get a, you can't get, it's like trying to besiege a city, and like, it's unattackable. You can't find an inn. You can't find an inroad into that city. And it's kind of that word in 1 Timothy 3 that you're looking at this person's character, and looking at it as a whole, there's no chink in the armor. You can't get a, you can't get a leverage. You can't get a way in. Uh, in 1 Timothy, or in Titus 1, the, the, the word is the idea of irreproachable. You can't bring a reproach. You can't bring a bad report. Now, you hear those words, and it kind of sounds like, man, that kind of sounds like this person's got to be sinless. But that is not the case. Whenever this word uh, or this idea of blameless character is used in the Bible, it's not trying to communicate sinless perfection because no one would be qualified except Jesus. But the idea is, as a whole, mature character. A character in which you can't get a, a leverage into. You can't have a handle on someone. You can't bring a, a sustained case against them as a whole in their character in life. They're unassailable in their character. Not blameless, uh, not, not, not sinless, sinlessly perfect, but mature, godly. Nothing you can hang on to. Not, you can't hang a charge on them that would stick. And really what we need to see as we talk about that word of above reproach or uh, irreproachable or unassailable, really that's the umbrella qualification for all of the things that Paul then lists. In other words, you flip it around, any one of those items on the list that you fail in means you are not above reproach, that you are attackable, that you can bring some sort of charge against. And what Paul is going to do, and we're going to walk through this, is that there's negative items and there's positive items. What the other thing you have to recognize, though, is, especially as you compare and contrast 1 Timothy 3 and Titus, you will recognize the lists aren't identical. Now, why is that? It's because these lists are representative not exhaustive. Representative, not exhaustive. In other words, you might say, well, this thing that I see in this person's life isn't on the list, uh, but uh, yeah, that makes that person uh, reproachable. Or yeah, that's, that's a character flaw in which we wouldn't put them in that office. But for any things that are mentioned on the list, if there's a failure there, then that would be a way that someone could fail to be above reproach. And some of this also, you will notice if you compare and contrast 1 Timothy and Titus, they're somewhat different. Uh, one of the reasons is probably uh, a cultural context. Uh, in 1 Timothy, the church is Ephesus. It's been established for several years. Uh, in Titus, it's brand new. And so you notice in uh, 1 Timothy, it says the person's not supposed to be a new convert. But in Titus, that's not listed because of some of the circumstances surrounding it. But the overarching idea that you keep coming back to when you're thinking about appointing an elder or an overseer is above reproach, irreproachable, no handle, no way of bringing a charge, a sustained charge against an elder. Notice too that this character, this irreproachable character, think of that as the big umbrella. Where is that supposed to be displayed? Where is that supposed to be displayed? Well, if you look at 1 Timothy 3, it's supposed to be displayed in two places, inside the church and outside the church. Inside the church and outside the church. Where do I get inside the church from? Well, if you walk through the list, 
uh, what's the idea that the church should be measuring this candidate or potential candidate against all these qualifications? That's internal. It becomes a little bit more explicit in verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And so the idea is he's talking about the church. Church, uh, don't, uh, uh, don't appoint a new convert. Don't appoint someone hastily. You need time to evaluate this guy's character. Plus, if you appoint someone too quickly, uh, they're going uh, to have a swell head. That's what we would say. Uh, and they're going to think too highly of themselves, and then they're going to get attacked by Satan and fall into that trap. But it's not just inside. Look at verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So it's both inside and outside, this idea of above reproach, of unassailable character. In other words, you should be able to walk into the person's uh, line of business, wherever they happen to be working, or their family, or um, just, just people in the community in general, and be able to interview them about this person and say, hey, what's this person like? Uh, how, how are they like to work with? What's their character traits? Um, and not, obviously, uh, unbelievers are going to have complaints against Christians in general, but there's a certain level at which, uh, is, this, is this guy a greedy guy? Is he, a, uh, is he work hard? Is he gentle? Or is he violent? You should still be able to get that feel from outsiders for this person. And so when we talk about this idea of being above reproach or unassailable character, it's both inside and outside the church. That's the general umbrella over which everything else that we look at this morning fits. It all feeds into being above reproach, irreproachable, unattackable, unassailable. And that'll make sense as we walk through these character items, because what is an elder supposed to do? They're supposed to shepherd. They're supposed to be an example. So let's see some of the specifics. So we've seen first, elders must have the right motivation. Elders must have unassailable character. And then next, elders must be free of vice. Elders must be free of vice. Look at 1 Timothy 3. And you, like I said, if you compare and contrast Timothy and Titus, there's overlap and distinction. So there's similarities in the list, and there's a couple things that are different between the lists. So I'm going to try to work through these and kind of indicate, well, these are both in both lists. This, this one's only in Timothy. This one's only in Titus. But kind of describe each one of these vices. These are things that you cannot have. If you have these, you're not above reproach. You're, 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 you, there's, there's a way in. If you think about that city under siege, there's a way into the city. There's a crack in the wall that you could exploit. But again, think about these in terms of, well, why would it be necessary for an elder to be free from these things? Remember, what is he supposed to be? He's supposed to be a shepherd and a shepherd by example. Follow me as I follow Christ. These things should be leading to Christ, not leading away from Christ. So first, in Timothy and Titus, we see this character qualification, not a drunkard. Not a drunkard. Now, in the ancient world, you're primarily talking about strong drink and wine and having too much to that um, you are considered a drunkard. Uh, but, you know, we could say it more generally this way, someone who's controlled or enslaved by a substance. Because, and, and think about that in terms of being an example. Well, if in terms of being an example, if, if an, uh, a potential elder is a drunkard, well, they're leading them the, away from Christ by example. Or even worse, if you just think of in terms of shepherding, so you got some uh, dude who's a drunkard, and uh, he's not going to lead people well. I mean, you just even think of how, how do drunkards walk? Well, then think about trying to walk in that way and then lead the people of God. Can't be a drunkard. Both in Timothy and Titus, the, the next qualification is not violent not violent. Now, how do we think about that? What do we mean by violence? Do we mean physical violence? Well, sure. I mean, if someone's, well, someone's uh, punching his way through problems, that's someone you do not want to appoint to leadership. But it's not just physical violence. I don't think that's all that Paul is alluding to. Uh, really, what, what's the idea behind violence? It's imposing one's will 
on someone else. It's pushing people around. It's pushing people around. Well, think about that again in terms of being an example. If, if you're supposed to lead by example and you're pushing people around, well, they're thinking, oh, I'll imitate that. So you think of, here's an elder and here's a, here's a husband who's supposed to imitate this elder, right, as he imitates Christ. Well, this guy's pushing people around. I can push my family around. In terms of an example, that disqualifies him. But also in terms of shepherding, as decisions get made in a plurality of elder, as, he, as the elders interact with the body, uh, the, uh, our Lord was gentle with the sheep, caring for them. Yes, there are times where discipline needs to happen and hard conversations and whatnot, but it should never be violence, just imposition of will and pushing people around. Next, in Timothy, this one's not in Titus, but it is in Timothy, not quarrelsome. Not quarrelsome. What's that idea? That idea is the idea of being non-combative. Non-combative. Or we might say it this way, you're not picking a fight. Right? We understand and are aware of people, interact with people who want to just fight. They get something out of fighting. I mean, if you spend any time on social media, there are a lot of quarrelsome people on social media, right? They're picking fights. Uh, they're even, sadly, Christians picking fights with each other over theology, theological topics. Not wrong to, to, to talk about theology or differences in theology, but it's wrong to just do it to be for the sake of a good fight. Just quarreling. How's that going to look in an elders meeting? Oh yeah, let's just fight over every little detail and not be willing to listen, to hear where someone else is at, to evaluate the position that people are just looking for fights. They're disqualified from being an elder. They're quarrelsome. What next? Timothy and Titus both address, like First Peter addressed, the idea of not being a lover of money. Uh, not being, uh, Titus would say it this way, not being greedy for gain or not being eager for shameful gain. In other words, uh, if you've got a greedy person, now l- let, me, let me put it this way. Greed doesn't mean you have a lot of money. You can be greedy and be in great deal of debt, right? Because what's the issue with greed? You're trying to acquire more and more and more and more. You're trying to acquire gain, whatever that looks like, whether it's material, whether that's in terms of reputation or whatever else, uh, you do not want a leader, an elder who is a lover of money or greedy for shameful gain. Why? Because, well, one, as an example, if he's supposed to lead other people, and people saying, well, that's a greedy person, well, then they're just going to, especially in our culture, they're just going to be, people are already drifting towards greediness and materialism. They're just going to be led into more materialism and entwined into what Jesus would call in the, the parable of the soils, the cares of this world, the weeds that are going to choke out spiritual life. That's in terms of example, but in terms of shepherding, you got a person who's greedy for gain and an elder's position, well, they're going to be looking after the money. What, what's in it for me? How can I fleece the flock? Right? How can I get what I can from them? You don't appoint that person to being an elder. Next in Titus, this one's not in Timothy, but it is in Titus. Uh, the ESV translates it this way, not being arrogant. Uh, really, the word is the idea of not being self-willed. Now, there's a relationship there. What does it mean to be self-willed? Uh, self-willed means my concerns, my direction uh, are above everything else. So there's where you can see the arrogance coming in, right? Uh, that my designs, my direction are above everything else, and I'm going to steamroll over everyone to get what my way. That's being self-willed, and you're arrogant while you're doing it. It's a concern for the self that makes your uh, one arrogant. Uh, you don't appoint that person as a leader. Why? Well, because uh, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if we think of in terms of example, but also if we think in terms of shepherding, remember what we said, this isn't, you don't act as an owner, you act as a steward. Well, what is a steward's? Where's his will coming from? The will of a steward is to do the will of the master, to do the will of the chief shepherd. So the person needs to be devoted to the will of Christ and his designs for the sheep, not their own self-will, self-designs. 
And then Titus, again, this one's in Titus, not in Timothy, not quick-tempered. We would say not with a short fuse, right? Someone who just gets irritated quickly, uh, escalates like that, blows up. You don't want that person as an elder. Uh, Why? Because by example, what is that communicating by example to those whom the potential person is supposed to lead But then also, in terms of leading a flock jointly with other elders, that's not going to go well. They'll be tearing tearing elders' meetings apart and tearing the flock apart, harming sheep, not quick-tempered. Now, those are, again, not exhaustive, but representative uh, samples of the vices that an elder is not supposed to have. But let's think about this. Is it enough to say you're not characterized by those things? Okay, you're not all of those things. You're, I mean, to put it in a kind of a, 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 a light term, you're not a bad person. Well, it's not enough to just not be a bad person. It's not enough to just not ha- be characterized by these vices. You need to also positively be full of virtue. Elders must be full of virtue. And you see this in each of the lists. There's a part of the list where Paul, in each case, devotes to saying, don't be this, but he doesn't stop there. Um, uh, That's not holiness in the Christian life. Holiness is not just not doing something. Avoiding sin is not, not enough. There's positive virtue that God wants for his people, that God wants for uh, Christians generally. And so elders, as exemplary, mature Christians, should be full of virtue. And again, we can think of each one of these in terms of being an example and being a shepherd. So let's go down the list in Timothy and Titus. So again, I've just kind of consolidated them. First, what heads the list in both Timothy and Titus, first one on the list, first one on the list is what is normally translated the husband of one wife. And I'm going to suggest to you that's not a very helpful translation. Uh, The better translation is man of one woman because that's what it says. It says man of one woman. And really, if you look at the culture and look at and do the, the comparison, uh, Paul's not talking about you were married once or you've never been divorced necessarily. What he is comparing and contrasting with is your physical and relational dedication to one woman. Physical and relational dedication to one woman. Now, I don't just say physical, but I also say relational, because someone could not commit adultery against their wife, but be relationally and emotionally checked out and not devoted. Devotion is a positive thing. So to be a man of one woman means you are devoted to loving and caring wife. Why? Why is that such a big deal? Well, think about how Paul talks about it in Ephesians. He's already addressed this to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 5, he talks about how the marriage relationship is to be an example of what? Christ and the church. So that has to be exemplary in an elder's wife. Physical and relational dedication to one woman. That heads the list because that's going to demonstrate the sort of character to be dedicated to the church and also the sort of dedication that Christ has for his church. What next? Timothy has this idea, uh, Titus doesn't have it, but the idea of, uh, it's translated sober-minded in the ESV. Uh, I think uh, temperate is how the NASB translates it. That's pretty good. Temperate, uh, it can refer to the not alcohol thing again, but more generally, if we talk about a temperate person, they're not given to extremes. They're not given to extremes. They're not, um, that could be with alcohol, that could be with hobbies, It could be with money. It could be with decisions of all sorts. So when we talk about a temperate person, it's a person not given to extreme behavior, which is unhealthy because uh, really, if you think about extreme behavior, you're, uh, as a Christian, you're getting rabbit holed into something that's distracting from following Christ. So if you think about that in terms of, uh, of being an example, or if you think about in terms of just the idea of shepherding, if you're given to extremes, if you're getting fixated on one thing in one direction, and your own self-will maybe going back to that idea, you're not going to help the flock. So temperate, not given to extremes. 
both Timothy and Titus have the next one. Uh, ESV translates it self-controlled, but this idea is uh, it's less about um, necessarily having control on yourself, but it involves the idea of the mind. We might translate it this way, sensible. I think the NASB has it as prudent. Sensible. Um, what does that mean? It means you have a sound mind displayed in your decisions in life. Uh, you're a sound mind in sensible action. You're not foolish. Proverbs characterizes the fool and the wise person, but you're sensible in life. Not just because um, that's good for you, but because you want to honor the Lord as a Christian in your life, being sensible. You want to make decisions that are not just good for you, but you, that please the Lord, that are wise. Well, and you want to lead. If you're going to lead as an elder, you've got to lead by example. You want to show people, here's what wise living looks like. Here's what wisdom, uh, living in the fear of the Lord looks like. And you also want to be sensible in terms of shepherding. Where does the flock need to go? Do we make that decision or do we make this decision? Do we go after this thing or do we go after that thing? We want a sensible person. Jesus wants a sensible person shepherding the flock. Timothy next uh, gives the, 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 the quality of respectable respectable. Actually, it's really interesting. This word for respectable, it's, um, it's this word where in which we get the word cosmetics. And it's actually used in 1 Peter 2 to talk about uh, women who are uh, like modest in their uh, apparel and their appearance. But here that idea is translated over to men, and it's the idea of respectable. In other words, there's a certain character that's attractive uh, in this person. Because why? Why is that important to have attractive character in a man, because this man, amongst the other elders, is leading the flock of God. He's leading by example. He needs to have a certain sort of, look at that guy. He's respectable. Learn from him, because he's going to be leading by example, an attractiveness, a propriety of character. Both Timothy and Titus include this word, hospitable, now, when we think of hospitality, we might think uh, of having people enter our home and kind of having the nice, you know, everything's clean, uh, everything's put into order, it's beautiful. Now, that's not wrong, but really the idea of hospitable here, I mean, if you would translate it really, really woodenly, it would be love of strangers, love of strangers. And so this idea is bigger than just, oh yeah, I'm going to have people into our home. It's the idea of welcoming strangers which in that time, in that way, uh, in that world, especially as a Christian, Christians are going around, they're sharing the gospel. Uh, they don't have places to stay. The inns are not great. They're horrible places. So you have to love a Christian stranger coming into your congregation saying, well, welcome, brother. Let me put you up. Let me care for your needs in a very tangible and concrete way. That's not excluding uh, non-Christians, right? Non-Christians who come through doors then, or Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 14, the idea of an unbeliever coming into the midst of the assembly. And what would you do with that person? You welcome them. It doesn't mean you're affirming them as a Christian. It just means you're welcoming them. You're being kind. And you want to know that person and care for their needs uh, physically and spiritually. Timothy then gives the idea next of uh, translated able to teach. Now, what's interesting here is, let's think about this. Remember, all of these character qualities are things for which, if you fail to be this, uh, you, are, you have reproach. Now, a lot of times we take this idea of able to teach as the skill of teaching, but if you fail to have the scale of skill of teaching, like you're just not gifted to be a teacher, uh, that's not reproachable, is it? So this idea, as I looked into it a little bit more this week, um, is uh, probably better uh, described as something like this, characterized by teaching. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, it's the idea, if you look at the idea of teaching in the pastoral epistles, which is a very prominent theme, the idea of teaching in the pastoral epistles is you have received the apostolic doctrine, proper apostolic doctrine, and then you are able to transmit it. So it's not necessarily that the skill of teaching is absent, but it's more the idea, are you characterized by sound teaching? Are you characterized by sound doctrine? And then yes, by extension, are you able to transmit it? Are you able to transmit it? We'll talk about that a little bit more when we go jump over to Titus. 
But really, if we were to think about it like this, as a character quality, as a virtue, it is that you know, or that a potential elder knows proper, good, sound doctrine, apostolic teaching, and is then able to transmit it. And if he does not, if he does not have sound teaching, sound doctrine, if he is not characterized by teaching in that sense, then it is a reproach, and you don't appoint him. Because why? What did we say the fundamental duty of an elder is? To shepherd, what's his primary tool? The word, the scriptures. And not things out of his own mind, but what has been handed down from the scriptures, through the scriptures. Uh, Timothy talks about someone who's not violent. We already talked about that earlier, but then he contrasts it with someone who's gentle. Now, this is not something like a mealy mouth, kind of just timid sort of person. Oh, I'm gentle. This is the idea of not insisting on every letter of law or custom. Uh, we understand this uh, when you get pulled over for a traffic ticket, um, and, uh, you know, the, the police officer says, you know, I should give you this $150 ticket or whatever it happens to be, but instead I'm going to let you off with a warning. That's being gentle. That's being gentle, and that's kind of the gentleness that's um, mentioned here, that, okay, if we were going by the letter of the law, the law could have us go up to this level, but given the circumstances, given where you're at, uh, um, and uh, we're going to be gentle with you, because we want you to be brought along. We don't want you to necessarily be crushed. Doesn't mean there's not discipline there, doesn't mean there's not warning, but there's, gentle, uh, there's a gentleness there. Titus talks about, the next few, four terms are from Titus, and they're not in Timothy. Titus talks about being a lover of good. What, what's good? God himself is the standard of good. Jesus says that, right? There's no one good except God alone. So what is a lover of good? A lover of good is someone who's pursuing good things in conformity with God's character. They love the things of God. They love God himself. They love what is in the scriptures, and they, um, they, they're delighted by that. It's a love. Titus talks about the person being upright, righteous action and conduct in life. Titus also uses this term, uh, it's translated holy. It's more the idea of devout. Uh, this word that it gets translated holy. When we think of holy, we hear the word holy, we think of moral purity, but really uh, something that's holy is something that is dedicated for God's use. It's a little bit different of a notion. Uh, so for, our, uh, for English, we might use the term devout. What does that mean, devout? You're dedicated to the things of God. You're dedicated to the disciplines that he gives. We would say it like this. When we say devotions, right? That's kind of the same idea of devout, right? I'm going to the word to know this God, to love this God. I'm going to church week in and week out. I'm disciplined in that, not just for the sake of checking it off my box, but because I am belong to God. I'm dedicated to the service of God. And as an elder, that needs to be true, right? You, you as a shepherd are dedicated to the service of God and the service of God's people. That person needs to be devout in his walk. And then finally, Titus would um, leave us with, ESV translates it disciplined. This is probably more the idea of self-controlled. You have a grip on yourself, power over yourself, and your inclinations to go one way or the other. You, we all have, even as Christians, sinful inclinations. Oh, I want to go this way. That's how the self wants to go. But depending on the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to have control over myself and live the way that God wants me to live, that Christ wants me to live. Again, this list of virtues is representative, not exhaustive, but it gives us the flavor of the sort of man whom Christ would put in charge. So we've seen, first, the elders must have the right motivation. Elders must have unassailable character. Elders must be free of vice. Elders must be full of virtue. And then finally, elders must have demonstrated the ability to shepherd well. So everything we've talked about so far is all kind of virtue-vice oriented. And like we said, this is, this is uh, what every person should be pursuing. And even the things we're about to talk about, every person should be pursuing in a sense. But now we change from just virtues and vices to skills. Skills. Elders must have demonstrated the ability to shepherd well. Where do we see this? We look at 1 Timothy uh, 3. 
and look at verses 4. Look at verse 4. He must manage his own household well. Now, pause right there, because we automatically usually just grow right into he's going to manage his own children well and handle them, keep them submissive. Uh, that's part of managing your household, but it's not the whole thing. In the first century, managing your household is like the whole household economy, meaning you have your family, yes, but you also have slaves and whatever else to manage, and it's like the whole running of the household. Is it running smoothly, like management? So when Paul talks about managing the household well, it's not just the, the, the family dynamics, as important as that is, and as much of that is, it's managing the whole uh, a household economy. Uh, it's an administrative sort of skill. It's an administrative sort of skill. Why? Because that's what elders and uh, uh, do. They shepherd. There's an administrative component to it. There's an oversight component to it. Where is that going to be demonstrated? How is that demonstrated before you become an elder? In your home. In your home. But then we can focus in specifically on the family aspect. Notice what Timothy then, or uh, Paul says to Timothy, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Titus says it differently. You can flip over to Titus just briefly because I want you to see this. Uh, Titus version, uh, ESV translates it this way, and his children are believers. That is a wrong translation, in my opinion. It's actually a difficult uh, translational issue. The word that's translated believers can be translated believers or faithful. And I think faithful is the better sense here because notice how Paul qualifies it in um, Titus. Uh, children who are faithful and his children are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The idea is, is not that you can guarantee as an elder, no one can guarantee that their children are saved. You can't. You can be faithful. You can train your children. You can teach them the, the truths of the gospel, and you ought to. You're responsible to do so, but you can never guarantee that your children become believers. But you can, by God's grace, work to make sure that your children are faithful. Faithful to whom? Well, faithful to you as parents. Disciplined, submissive, not in accusation of dissipation, wildness, or rebellious. And the skills of parenting that are needed to do that, those are the proven ground for the skills of shepherding God's flock and God's family, God's household. So it needs to be demonstrated in the household first. Why? Well, Tim the reason is given in Timothy. Someone can't manage his own household. How is he going to manage the church of God? It's a very simple argument from lesser to greater. You can't manage your house and its whole economy. You can't um, keep your children disciplined, uh, you're not going to be a good elder. And really, in a sense, uh, one of my pastors said it this way, that's your first ministry as a man, is to your family. And if you do your first ministry well, maybe God gives you a second ministry in terms of eldership. And from all this, we understand, and it's been said, that it's very clear that elders or pastors are men. Women can lead women well, so we're not discounting that at all. And women should pursue these same character qualifications because what did we say? This is ordinary Christianity done exemplary well. But in terms of oversight and leadership of the flock of God, it is very clear from 1 Timothy 3 that this is for men. Men, as God has designed them to lead in the creation order. And then one final thing, we've talked about the household but how else do you demonstrate skill and ability? First, uh, Titus 1.9. Remember, we talked about that idea of being characterized to teach. Well, Titus 1.9 fleshes it out. What does it mean to be characterized to teach? Titus 1.9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Apostolic sound doctrine. As the word teaches it. So that... He may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Positive instruction to build up, uh, rebuking to show that's wrong, we're not going that direction, that's false teaching, that's not healthy. So you got both, negative, the negative side and the positive side based on what the faithful word, the trustworthy word handed down.
So what's the job qualifications for elders? Elders must have the right motivation. Elders must have unassailable character. Elders must be free from vice. Elders must be full of virtue. Elders must have demonstrated the skill of shepherding in their family and their knowledge of the word. Who wants to sign up? <laughs> but as we conclude, we think about this. How can, this question should be on your mind as we've kind of walked through this and meditated on this this morning. How in the world can one attain and maintain this kind of maturity? How's that even possible? Because if you know your own heart and you're honest with your own heart, you're like, uh, yeah, I'm not there yet. And all four of us as elders would say, we're still growing in a lot of those character qualifications. We're always pursuing growth. But here is, here is how one attains and maintains that. It is not pull myself up by my bootstraps, I'm going to be a better person. It is the gospel of change. It is the reality that we are slaves to sin before Christ. Through repentance and faith and believing in Christ, he sends his spirit on each individual Christian, each person who is his, and they are counted righteous in God's eyes, and now they are also transformed into righteous action, such that there is a trajectory. Sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. Oftentimes it feels that way, but there is a change as one depends on the power of the indwelling spirit. Think of the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, how those align with all of the character qualifications of eldership. Well, what is that coming from? The indwelling spirit that Christ has given through the gospel, through repentance and faith. Are you saying there's no hard work that the Spirit's just going to zap me and I'm going to be holy? No, because Philippians 2, 12 to 13 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works within you both to will and to work for your good pleasure. You head this direction, you aspire, you reach for this direction, dependent in the working hard, dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. It is 100% hard work and it is 100% dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit to attain and maintain the mature character that Paul is talking about. So how do you apply this? Like we said at the beginning, every one of you in this room should aspire to this sort of character. Like I said, only men can be elders, but women lead women, and women, you ought to pursue this sort of character as well. Every one of us should be striving for these things. Ordinary Christianity done in an exemplary way. But then specifically, I want to address the men in this room. Men seek to be an elder qualified man. And the reality is, I'm speaking especially to the young dads in this room, of which I am one. Give proper attention to your family as your first ministry. If you don't do that now, you've disqualified yourself 20 years or 10 years or however many years before you even get the shot of being nominated as an elder. Aspiration for eldership starts now. And maybe God doesn't take you that direction. Maybe that's not how you're fit and serve the church, but labor to be a faithful man, an elder qualified man now. Members, look for men who meet these qualifications and do not settle for less. Churches get in such a state and such trouble when they settle. This is one of the reasons we got rid of our constitution. You got to have a minimum of three. Well, what does that tend to produce? We got to have three bodies in that position. We don't want bodies. We want men who are qualified by these characters. Don't settle. This is why we ask for reaffirmation each year, because we want to know as elders, do you see anything in us that is wrong that we need to know about? Now, that shouldn't show up at the vote. You should be talking with us ahead of time saying, hey, Chris, I see this area in your life. Uh, I'm worried about that. You should do that to me, and I would welcome it. But that's what we're saying. We don't want the members to settle. We want you to hold the office of elder high and seek men that are qualified and not settle for less. 
That is a sober and holy thing. What are we talking about? What does else all matter? It's, it's about the structure of the church and how Christ has designed it. Why? So that we can carry the Great Commission forward. So that we can be a church that is a lampstand for unbelievers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the chief shepherd. And you will never fail. You will never be disqualified. You will never be reproachable. You will never be assailable in your character, attackable. There is no charge that could ever be brought against you that would stick. And we thank you that you rescue your enemies, your rebels, changing them, not, not only giving them a righteous standing, a clear record before God, but then changing us to be conformed to the image of your son. And then you raise men to lead under shepherds. Lord God, we thank you for that reality. And yet it is a daunting task. Lord, we pray that we would in this church always appoint qualified men, men that love your flock, make the current elders lovers of the flock, Lord, help us to function together as a body well. We would ask these things and pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen.